So today is the Vesaka Puja Day, which is the commemoration in the lunar calendar of the birth, awakening and parinibbana of the Buddha. I'll give a, a couple of readings and reflections on um, on a, on a relevant theme. This is a uh, book of the three, Angutra, the numerical discourses, book of the threes, number 75. Uh, Ananda, uh, the Buddha talking to Ananda. Ananda, those for whom you have compassion and who think you should be heeded, whether friends or companions, relatives or family members, should be encouraged, settled, and established by you in three things. What three? They should be encouraged, settled, and established in unwavering confidence in the Buddha. Thus, the Blessed One is uh, enlightened, and so forth. The teacher of gods and humans, the enlightened one, the Blessed One. They should be encouraged, settled and established in an unwavering confidence in the Dhamma. Thus, the Dhamma is well expounded by the Blessed One. Directly visible, not delayed in time. Leading inwards, personally verified by the uh, in oneself and personally experienced by the wise. They should be encouraged, settled, and establishing you know, even confidence in the Sangha. Thus, the Sangha of the Blessed One's disciples is practicing the good way, practicing rightly, practicing insightfully, practicing directly, practicing with wisdom, the unsurpassed field of merit for the world. There might be, Ananda, alteration in the four great elements the earth element, the water element, the fire element and the air element, but there cannot be alteration in a noble disciple who possesses unwavering confidence in the Buddha. In this context, this is alteration that this noble disciple who possesses unwavering confidence could be reborn in hell, in the animal realm, in the sphere of afflicted spirits. Such a thing is impossible. There might be alteration in the four great elements, but there cannot be alteration in a noble disciple who possesses unwavering confidence in the Dhamma and in the Sangha. That someone who possesses unwavering confidence in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha could be reborn in hell. In the animal realm or in the sphere of afflicted spirits, such a thing is impossible. Ananda. Those for whom you have compassion, 
and who think you should be heeded, whether friends or companions, relatives or family members, should be encouraged, settled and established by you in these three things. As you are well aware, and probably becomes increasingly apparent to we, we live in an intersection of different realities, different modes of experience, all which have their pressures and influences upon us. And one is the world of sense fields, sense consciousness, which is manifested, it presents the experience of linear space, extending around us, we infer from it the experience of linear time before us and behind us. And in this realm, we move constantly forward towards aging, sickness, death. We move across uh, a planet, around it. We settle down in various sections of it. We feel we own it. we live in this world, interacting with other human beings who live in the same, or sharing the same kind of experience. Mm. Around this experience, we try to establish permanent territory, safety, security, permanence, in a world that's measured by the movement of time. There can be no such thing. We try to establish definite territory in a terrain that is not ours. We cannot own it. We you cannot own Earth. And it doesn't doesn't it doesn't make any sense. But in doing so, we uh, cling. There is clinging, fixation, um, gain and loss, rising and decline. Comparisons and contrast, conflict and disagreement, (coughs) wars and violence. We also live in another domain, which for a meditator becomes increasingly clear, which is the welling up uh, of perceptions, memories, intuitions, Uh, reactions, sankharas, the world of aggregates. Mm. This is, doesn't really move in time. Mm. Doesn't move in space, wherever you go, there it is, same thing. Doesn't really move in time. Mm. So we can have a, a memory, we call it something that happened three years ago. Well, How come it's happening now? We have expectations of the future. How how can that be happening now? How can the future be happening now? 
So if we review these things with correct attention, we see, oh, this is regret and nostalgia. We call it the past. This is residual pain, distress, residual affections, affiliations and loyalties. Well, this is expectation and anticipation and dread. We call it the future. Mm. What is the meaning of this? The citta dwells in the field of karma. Mm. That which has been affected by, moved by, touched by, stabbed by, delighted by, calmed by, uplifted by, that's where it dwells. It dwells in these patterns, Mm. karma. Therefore, as someone who begins to have access to this more consciously, says, well, let me then dwell. I have a choice. I can actually create actions that would live helpful residues. I could associate with beings would give rise to calm, pleasing, loving, uh, upright uh, memories, perceptions. Let me do that. Let me depend upon that rather than on the world of space and time. Let me depend upon that. Let me steer myself in accordance with that. And uh, to this extent, one has understanding of the priorities of which domain is the best one to cultivate. And looking at this rightly, correctly, one would say, well, the domain of space and time, although, yeah, to a degree I'm in that, but the best you can get out of it isn't that great. I would still be beset by anxiety, by fear, by restlessness, by doubt, by irritation, by craving, no matter where I travel. This is not the best place to cultivate. The best place to cultivate is this field, karmic field. Mm. Having associated with a a teacher, a Buddha, a Dhamma, or uh, one of the Buddha's disciples, one is encouraged to look further into this, say, well, there's also a kind of actions that lead out of the field of karma. Another domain which we probably had very little, no access to or limited access to or only intuited, if at all, called the deathless. And there's a kind of action that leads from the skillful field of action out chitta normally so embedded in this karmic domain, this karmic field, could, through the elimination of craving, infatuation and clinging, lead out, move out, or you could say the, the field drops away. This is possible. And we live in this this uh, potential 
And we also live in this potential of sights and sounds and touches and fragrances and world news and political issues that are impinging. And these speak very loudly. And so the one of the main themes of Buddhist practice, Dhamma practice, and particularly on the opposite of today's, is to turn up the volume on the other theme, on this, this other theme do with virtue, to do with recollection, to do with meditation, also just to do with what you bond to. Now we have previously and will continue to contemplate this quality called upadana, clinging, and as I've suggested this can be slightly misinterpreted as you shouldn't attach to anything and therefore you shouldn't attach to the Buddha, <laughs> the Dharma, the Sangha, the teacher, the precepts, develop a mind of non-attachment. Shouldn't, don't attach to conventions and forms at all. When it says no, there's an unwise, uh, uh, gener- you know, self-generating experience that can occur around these things. But we also should realize there is something definitely to take dependence on, which is the phrase often used, take dependence on, not upon the ear, the nose, the tongue, body and thinking mind, but incline one's heart to take dependence upon the triple gem and what it stands for. And what the Buddha is saying here is someone who has done such deeply committed to it and commitment is the word bring in mind refresh bring up resonate notice resonate commit saying for such a one is it possible the world of becoming for them will arise in any of these unfortunate realms. Hell, animal realm, sphere of afflicted spirits. So the Buddha out of compassion is saying, you know, anyone who will listen to you, who will think you should be heeded, then in fact you should encourage them. You shouldn't just be not attached to them <laughs> or let them do their own thing. If you think they'll listen to you, in some or another you try to float even or model or exemplify or present the alternative mm. Mm. you know like the first precept or the, f- or the fifth precept you'd really need to drink alcohol, poison, dogs wouldn't drink it, cats wouldn't drink it, costs a lot of money, drives you crazy what you know <laughs> things like this and uh, but how one does this of course mm. those who will be heeded uh, and uh, certainly as as uh, the great Christian saints and Francis said you know yeah. to his disciples you should teach the gospel endlessly 
Use words if you need to. <laughs> so in other words, you walk it, you know, and realize sometimes walking it is better than talking it. You know, talking it, people oh, argue, argue, you know, oh, who, she, who you think you are talking to me. Like so just, you just live it, model it, present it, and people check it out for themselves. What you? Yeah. And it certainly gives an a, a certain sense of a, a nice edge to one's practice because certainly one's practicing for one's own welfare but do you really bear in mind that your own you know conduct and things you don't do and things you don't get bothered by could actually model something for people who will pay attention to you well, she's not doing that huh? he always does that And as it said in the uh, often the narratives, this uh, first sign that people were inspired by, they saw these arahants coming in. They didn't know what they were, they were doing, so, or you know what they believed in or thought or practiced. But they noticed, wow, these contemplatives, their countenances are serene and bright. You see them just living on heaps of straw on the ground, living on scraps of food, wearing rags. And yet their faces are bright and clear. They're joyful. Minds as, minds as bright and joyful, as quick as a deer, as nimble as that. This is worth considering. <laughs> you know, just that, the walking, walking the talk. You commit, you commit body, speech and mind commit with the body make a bodily commitment commit with speech commit with mind and all these are uh, for your own welfare but also it's creating a sign in in this world a very I think it's an important thing to bear in mind we this sense of we we are living in this sensory reality and uh, part of our practice is to bring into this sensory reality the sign of the other world, of the other, the sign of the other reality, out of compassion, certainly for our own welfare because if you're constantly walking in the presence of the triple gem internally, it means you, you start to, hey, no, don't do that. That's not worthy of you. Now you've put that behind. Those moments when your mind can slip and just know that's not the way a disciple behaves. It's not en- enough. This. So you're training yourself, but also in presenting that, you're offering what you can out of compassion, whether you've got the words for it or not. And this gives one a a place to be in this world. Commit. So certainly in my own experience, 
experience, then I didn't really have a personal ambition to <laughs> to be a Buddhist monk per se, but I was grateful for the opportunity to, you know, um, well, to given some meditation instructions by a, by a monk, and then look for a place to where I could practice it, realizing I just didn't think I could do it without a considerable amount of structure to to uh, check my impulses and to keep me focused. I was only 25 years old. You know, there's a lot of other stuff running, so I better get, get to a monastery, and therefore, you know, one will be in a, an atmosphere that will certainly check what I do and what I come into contact with. And at the same, same time, I'll be saturated in in his teaching so get this do that and it's going to be like kind of going to a to a doctor or something okay go through the operation might take a little while and come out the other end you know <laughs> going to hospital <laughs> remedial you know get get a few kinks knocked out of your system get massaged back into shape and then back on the road so that that essentially was the kind of vague notion I had and so I did that and then just sort of uh, you know found myself strangely this growing sense of don't really feel particularly inclined to do anything else right now uh, but that will change keep meditating practicing and keeping these precepts and until I get the idea of, you know, something else will come and months go by and then until I get something else months go by <laughs> uh, this world of time is disappearing one <laughs> is settling more deeply into the chitta this world of time and place is disappearing yeah. it's not oh this is it great I want to be a Buddhist monk for the rest of my life no no it's just that the world of time and place is disappearing <laughs> you're in this it's not the monasteries are fantastic and I really think they're great no the world of time and place is disappearing <laughs> you're in this and it's often so then you know where you go? Why? Where else are you going? In the world of time and place? Why? Perhaps that's the end of the world of time and place in some respects, as far as your jitters concerned, as far as your heart's concerned. Maybe you know. I never thought about it, but maybe that was kind of like the end of it. You know. It's like musical chairs. The music the band stop playing, you sit in the chair. You're waiting for the band to strike up again and they don't. <laughs> oh, oh I guess this is my chair then. <laughs> and then well then commit to it. There's a feeling that became clear just because then one doesn't have to deal with this wondering comparing am I good enough am I not good enough 
should I be this? How long should I be this for? Well, is, where's the best one or another place? You just, just, just deal with that. Just do this, you know. And then if something clear comes up, then you know you you can change it. Then clear decision comes with something else. You, it's up to you. You're not committed to this for life. You're not a vow. It's just a commitment. And if something else comes up, you're committed to the heart and to training the heart. And if an alternative situation or modality seems to give you better opportunities, stronger, clearer, then you have every possibility of doing that. Just stay with this until... hmm? So it's committing. And the commitment itself is is, uh, something to have a certain handle on. Hmm. Because what can you really, in your heart of hearts, commit to? What can you really, in your heart of hearts, place that utter dependence on? You know, if you say take dependence upon something, that you know, and then eventually we have to come down to the ways and means to purify the heart, to free oneself from suffering. Yeah, and that must be a fundamental commitment. And then we're starting to learn from what the heart is, you know, suggesting or finding itself making use of in terms of the skillful means. And skillful means of what we call Dhamma practice, wise companionship, alignment to the Buddha, you know, or this teacher. As one notices and you start to fathom some of the things he's saying. Wow, how did he get there? You know, how did he know that? And then, so, so this commitment is something to be you know, carefully held as one's, it's yours, no, absolutely no one else's. It's your most intimate thing. It should not be decided upon by anyone else. This is your intimate thing. It's more intimate than your hairstyle, your body shape. You know, all those things are conditioned by the society. This is the most you bit of you, (laughs) is what you commit to. And you see, well, can you, if it's fuzzy, you start to clarify it. The more clear it gets, the stronger it gets. But take your time, let it clarify, distill, consolidate, become sharp and strong. And it will grow. You commit, like in a tentative way, you might say, to keeping precepts, five precepts, eight precepts, meditation practice, and you build around that. And it's important to keep that, that, that central principle there and to orient one's life around it in fact to orient one's life in the space-time continuum means you're living in one con- one life rather than two mm-hmm. but you take the Dhamma as the basic or the, the root of it and then you start to feel how that can manifest in the world of space-time
this integration. So you're dealing also with uh, the very peculiarly personal manifestation in this world of space-time, body, relationships, his personal history, and you, you, you know, holding that within this much more universal Dhamma field. So you're learning your specific personal piece, how that unwinds within this. So you keep putting the two together. So we're not practicing Dhamma as an abstract entity or as a theory or even as a as a pedagogical course in like like learn these, learn that, learn this, learn that, and then you get the results. No, 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 it's not learn how many Indriyas, how many Vojangas, you know, dependent origination, and then you get the results. Now this is press your, your own embodiment into those forms and see what happens. Press your own embodiment into those teaching structures, into those modalities, into those behaviors, see what happens. See where it yields and see where it presses and see where it grinds and see where it opens. There's your practice. And many times it is quite grinding for me. I think when I see life um, probably more unpleasant than pleasant. I won't say it's always unpleasant, but I think personally probably inclined more towards the unpleasant than the pleasant (laughs) in terms of... (laughs) And that seems a strange thing to say. But I'm not saying it is, I'm saying it struck me that way. The amount of things I've just not... Mm-hmm. But then I, then it, I, it has helped me to see through my disyncrasies, my stubbornness, my narrow-mindedness, my... Yeah. Karma. And there is progress... Sometimes progress is smooth and easy, pleasant. Sometimes it's a bit rocky through the unpleasant, moving through the unpleasant. And I think I've certainly, I say, not totally unpleasant, but probably a lot of unpleasant experience. Uh, And just moving through those, wearing down, not moving through them, seeing through them. Mind becomes clearer. And that's sort of personal, through commitment. I mean, one cannot commit to pleasant feeling if you noticed. <laughs> I rather like to be able to commit to pleasant feeling, inspiring ideas and wonderful companions and everything's really great. Well, yeah, I'll have some of those too, but I've got a feeling <laughs> it's not going to happen that way. It's going to be committing to the the mixed blend of it all and probably the unpleasant bits will strike one more acutely than the pleasant bits I was just saying I emphasize I don't think monastic life is, is, is by itself unpleasant it's just that those are the bits that I remember <laughs> that stick <laughs> and so then oh look at you know that, dis- that disposition uh, and to start to actually where through that do you see the beautiful and the joyful and the blessedness and the generosity that's also part of it? Oh, I didn't, you know, how did I not notice that? Yeah. 
that one's kind of crankiness and grumpinesses. <laughs> ah, oh yeah, yeah, that, that lighter quality to it. Mm. And so this commitment, when you make aditana commitment, when you make commitment, then you can be pretty sure in no short in no short time you'll come up with many reasons to not follow that commitment. <laughs> it's the nature of it. It's a, it's a good commitment, a really good one. You'd be sure that pretty soon you'll say, well, but no, I don't really need to. <laughs> or maybe on another hand, it's the nature of the mind, isn't it? And so I want to be patient, resolute, and at least keep inquiring into those voices that say, ah, it doesn't really matter. I make a deal out of this, or... Well, again, it could do it another way. Those, those are the the Mara hosts of doubt and seduction, and you know, uh, and, you know, which we follow. Stop. And you make these reasonable commitment you can make. And so, certainly, in a, what we call monasticism, commitment is never uh, expected. For for life, it's always well. Just make a commitment. If you manage this for a week, good. Two weeks, good. Month, oh, good. Three months, oh, you've got some parami. You know, one year, oh, you must be nearly an hour hunt by now. Yeah, <laughs> certainly in Thailand, people are very generous in their in their esteem of. Uh, you make a commitment for five years or so, and you actually manage to keep it. I think Think you know, they really get a lot of lot of credit for that. You know, realizing just how much one has to bear with the rockiness of the mind and the passions and the so forth. So, but you don't have to. And of course, as it is, most people will do a period and then that's good enough, you know. And some people, a minority, feel they haven't finished or they they want to continue with that and again it's all very personal and nobody's blamed or or anything it's just you realize there's a karmic thing here that one's trying to people are trying to work out in accordance with their strengths and capacities and yet when it was commitment to the triple gem whatever form your life can make it that is important to sustain teachings that there is an awakened one. There is that potential. How many people even know that? And not just as an idea. I mean, we might have very well have, you know, Kuan Yin or Tara, but as an idea. But this was a person <laughs> with a body who walked around in the India, living on alms food and dying of dysentery. You know, this is a real flesh and blood being, and gave these amazing teachings. You know. Or so, so you know, this is you get it in both as an image and as a historical reality, and as a dharma transmission. Three. Well, how many people really get that? And the Buddha saying, you know, you can do this. The very lovely short sutta where the Buddha says, look, do this, do the good. Do this. I wouldn't have taught it to you if it didn't make you feel better and you couldn't do it. 
I wouldn't have taught it to you. <laughs> because you can do it, and it does make you feel better, do it. You know, it's, it's like, yeah, I wouldn't have bothered. Otherwise, if you couldn't do it, you can do it. And if it didn't make you, it wasn't f- to make you feel, if it didn't make you feel better, I wouldn't have taught it. You know, it's that earthy and that accessible. But an exertion is necessary, uh, an inclination is necessary, a certain commitment is necessary, a certain trajectory is necessary, a certain steady inclining is necessary. And the theme of the practice, by and large, is just this sense of the, like a steady inclining that's sustainable, not a sudden knee-jerk you know, surge, but a steady, progressive inclining that's sustainable, and every, it's sustained by, it continually goes back to the place of ground, commitment, I can feel the sound, I can live this, I can embody it, I feel good in it, yes, therefore one is strengthened by that, therefore one can incline a little further, and this is called, this is the way of progress. <coughs> You know, today being the Upasita and the Vesak, so we also a uh, very significant part of, of practice is this quality of uh, uh, recollection puja, which means you deliberately, you know, use a day, uh, and the Upasita days would be. Uh, phases of the moon so the full moon and the new moons and also there will be an intervening one and these are the days when I think even prior to the Buddha people would recognize Upasata means something like drawing near uh, things are drawing near which means because the moon is going through this phase the great cosmological forces are shifting and drawing close to the earth or drawing close to the human realm and so that's the time when people think right now is the time to step out of our space time sensory commitment and get into the heart and this is the time when we you know we commit to morality for one night you know we commit to renunciation for one night we commit to recollecting our virtues for one night we commit to honoring our elders we commit to uh, picking up our practices, whatever they are, to align us to this more cosmological uh, quality which is doesn't move forward in space and time, it's just constantly turning. And the cosmology, in, in Buddhist perspective, is really like an external manifestation of the internal cosmology of karma, in which, right, you look into your mind, that's not linear, that's circular. There are shapes and forms that arise and eddy around that and come back again and again. Yeah. You have an inner cosmology, in there you'll find your hungry ghosts, your demons, your devas, your saints, you know, your dumber friends are in that that inner cosmology. And so in in that 
this time when when ritual is properly understood, then you align your inner cosmology to the outer cosmology, Mm. where there are similarly hellish creatures and angels and devas and saints and so forth, and once departed relatives. So you put the two together and you, you align to that through what's called observance. Pick it up, remember it, recollect it. No movement forward in time. Deepen into the meanings. Mm. So this was this is the opposite of the observance. And so we might say it's a kind of a ritual practice, but ritual, though it's naturally the word has travelled along in, in culture for millennia, and. Uh, as things do, it's become rather travestied, particularly since the now Protestant Reformation and the corruption of ritual into blind, empty ritual. We tend to dismiss it as superstition. But the, there's an ancient word for Dhamma, it was Ritta, Ritta which I believe is where ritual comes from, which means literally, Dharma means literally the true order of things, the order of the cosmos. And ritual is our way of resonating with the order of the cosmos. So we resonate in terms, and for a Buddhist, Buddha practice is not really aligning oneself to, you know, placating deities, but to resonating with virtue, resonating with purity of heart, resonating with, you know, the way out of suffering, training, resonating with that, taking in, resonate, remembering it, recollecting it. I am a disciple, I am training. This is where I, this is what I'm doing. This is where I am. And you deepen and you recollect your resources in that time. And there's a certain honouring that's appropriate for that. You know, know, clearly just honouring yourself as a flesh and blood being in space-time is not that easy. (laughs) I mean, you know, one can have some sense of, well, you know, did okay, you know, or at least not beating myself up. But this is really honouring qualities in heart. And so therefore you use an external form to act as a mirror for the, and put, trying to bring the two together. Mm-hmm. It's something to be, again, it's something that first of all it feels, what's this about? And then maybe over time it becomes more clearer and focused. Um, there's a sutta here on the Upposita, the and Gutra Book of the Threes, number 70, and I'll just read extracts from it, where the Buddha's talking to Visakha. Visakha was his principal um, lay woman disciple. He was a great matriarch, and Sawati actually built a monastery for the Buddha and was a tremendous beneficiary. And also... Uh, a great disciple and a, uh, uh, an attained being in her own right. 
and how Visaka is the noble ones. He talks about <laughs> the cowherds who pose at the <laughs> which is when the cowherd recollects his cows and where they like to graze and so forth. <laughs> and this is what he this is what his mind is, is concerned with, the welfare of his cows. Uh, and so on. And then he talks about the ascetics um Oposita, the, the values that they bring up and recollect. And he talks about what he refers to as the noble ones, which is his own um, enlightened beings, uh, Oposita observed. How is the noble ones Oposita observed? The defiled mind is cleaned by exertion. And how is the defiled mind cleansed by exertion? Here, Visaka, a noble disciple, recollects the Tathagata. Thus, the Blessed One is an Arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true knowledge and conduct, fortunate, knower of the world, unsurpassed, trainers of persons to be tra- tamed, teachers of devas and humans, the enlightened one, the Blessed One. When a noble disciple recollects the Tathagata, his mind becomes placid, joy arises, and the defilements of the mind are abandoned in the same way that one's head, when dirty, is cleansed by exertion. How does one cleanse a dirty head? By exertion. (laughs) By means of cleansing paste, clay, water, and the appropriate effort by the person. Such a way one's head when dirt is cleansed by exertion. So too the defiled mind is cleansed by exertion. And how is the defiled mind cleansed by exertion? A noble disciple recollects the Tathagata. Mind becomes placid, joy arises, the defilements of mind are abandoned. This is called a noble disciple who observes the oppositor of Brahma, who dwells together with Brahma. It's by considering Brahma that the mind becomes placid, joy arises, and the defilements of the mind are abandoned. It's this way that the defiled mind is cleansed by exertion. <laughs> so this is really, it gives you an understanding of what exertion can mean. It just means, you know, bringing something to mind and staying with it and deepening into it. And so the heart absorbs into this uh, uh, the meaning of this and here <laughs> rather interestingly the opposer of Brahma which uh, later Brahma became uh, in India became a deity but here it means something just like the holiness or the great yeah before it became an entity, it was a quality of purity. So one dwells, observes the importance of purity. And he does the same with the Dhamma, and the same with the Sangha. Cleansed by exertion, the exertion is recollection. How is one cleanse a dirty cloth by exertion, by means of heat, lyre, cow dung, water, appropriate effort by the person. So the defiled mind is cleansed by exertion. And how is the defiled mind cleansed by exertion? A noble disciple recollects the Sangha thus. Sangha, the blessed one's disciples, is practicing the good way. 
Mm. Worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitalities, worthy of offerings, and so on. By recollecting this, the mind becomes placid, joy arises, defilements of mind are abandoned. One recollects one's own virtuous behaviour as unbroken, flawless, unblemished, unblotched, freeing, praised by the wise, ungrasped, leading to concentration. When a noble disciple recollects his virtuous behaviour, mind becomes placid, joy arises, defilements of the mind are abandoned, in the same way that a dirty mirror is cleansed by exertion. Mm. Then he recollects the eight precepts and um, so on. This, so this, you know, the dirty mirror. The mirror is often used as an image of chitta, something that reflects, and naturally we can ref- we, the, the chitta can turn back and recollect one's faults and blemishes, uh, one's uh, struggles and disappointments. Mm. The training of the mind of, in this opposite is to recollect one's virtues, whether they've been manifested, whether you've been able to act upon them, or you hold them dearly in your heart. It's the time to recollect one's virtues, the ones that you hold dear in heart. Uh, feel enthused by, inspired by, gladdened by, strengthened by, comforted by, supported by. Recollect, make an exertion, recollect them, bring them to mind, dwell in the sign, allow them to dispel the worry, the doubt, the anxiety, the self-view. Then one has gained a certain basis of strength, a certain basis for um, orientation, and something you can integrate into your life, the way you live, keep orienting, resetting your living sensory life in accordance with your core human realized values and virtues, and meet the edge where the two grind against each other, <laughs> where the two, yeah, and that's is your personal. Uh, practice to find your own personal form. So this is your own personal form means there are certain, uh, we might say certain duties one should consider. Duties may not be the most you know, inspiring term, but certain things one should say, you know, daily, on a daily basis I do this, on a weekly basis I do this, on a monthly basis I do this, this is something I do. Sometimes I feel glad, sometimes I feel a bit bored, but I do this. Uh, This is what I do. I make offerings, or I serve, or I meditate, or I, yeah, I just do it. And it gives me a shape. It gives me a shape because if I don't do it, I take another shape, which is going to be the shape of space, the world space-time shape of you know it's nine o'clock, it's Thursday, da 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 da. You know it's going to be that shape. So I take this because for a start, it stops me taking the other shape, 
it gives me a form and then I it gives me a form that encourages me to rise up to the meaning of that yeah so for example I always have live wherever I go I I like to carry a Buddha with me or I try and find a Buddha and place it somewhere so that every day first thing first thing when I get up is I bow to the Buddha it's just a small form at the end of the day last thing bow to the Buddha this is not a precept this is not a requirement but it's something that reminds you've risen into conscious life let that be determined you know you've completed your conscious day recollect where, where it's been about so you've lived within the boundary of the Buddha you've acted in a way whereby if the Buddha was living with you would he have been pleased with that or not would would he have said more would he have encouraged you and a sense of gratitude also to have lived for a day in the virtual presence of a Buddha just to you know just the gratitude to have you know I'm born in North London you know <laughs> on the world of space time born in North London <laughs> you know well what does that mean to you <laughs> or anybody really but to be born within the dispensation of the Buddha that's something to feel grateful for, gladdened by, encouraged by. So I regard this as a duty. As a mendicant, you know, I have a duty to to um general you know, lay people or people who 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 uh, are inclined towards the Dhamma to offer support. It's as best I can. I have a duty to fellow summoners, to model, to live, to train, to cooperate with. Uh, And sometimes these things you just feel a bit tired or tedious or what's the point, but you just do it. And you don't worry or doubt or wonder how good you are, whether you can do it, whether you're worthy of it, how well you just stop that. Just do it. (laughs) And let the results speak for themselves. So living this way of, of using, when we say certain duties, one's duty to one's preceptor, teacher and so forth, you know, to pay respects at suitable times. Living within that that continuum you're really not living a life dependent on personality. But life lived in terms of relationship. interrelatedness to one's own karma to the goodness of other people uh, relationships that are connected through compassion and concern and gratitude and respect mm-hmm. rather than what I like and don't like yeah. and this shift this shift this is encouragement to cultivate this way of observance and recollection. So, 
day being our day when one level is just Saturday, May 19th. What does that do? <laughs> For another way we could say this is the day when this human being realized Nibbana and set rolling this course of events of which we are still inheriting the benefits. A day for gladness, a day for practice. He won't.